Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 4 and 5 this morning. The title of my message is The Underdog, The Broncos versus The Panthers. <laughs> We're actually going to go back to David and Goliath and 1 Samuel. No, just joking. 2 Samuel chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach your word, we thank you for your relationship with us, that you're our dad, that this is your love letter to us, that you give us these things for our learning, for our good, so that we could understand you in a greater way. And God, we're dependent upon you. We think of the words of Jesus, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and I'll fill them with living water. And we recognize our dependency. We, we recognize our thirst. And this morning, our, our souls thirst for you. And Jesus, would you grant to us that living water? We thank you that you are with us, and as we have sang, uh, the need for you to move, the, the need for, for you to show up in our lives, that that's when change happens. That's when our perspective becomes right. So we invite you to do that. Pray you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. In these two chapters, we're going to be looking at how David is established as king over all of Israel. This is the moment. This is the moment that he'd been waiting for some 15 years. He's king over Judah, just one tribe. But in these two chapters, he'll become the king of all of Israel, all 12 tribes. So let's jump right in and look at verse 1 of chapter 3. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all of Israel was troubled. This is Ishbosheth. He was over these 11 tribes, the son of Saul. He found out that Abner had went as a traitor to David, then was killed by Joab, and he completely loses heart. He can see the writing on the wall that David is going to become king, that he's going to, to lose his power. The reason that he lost heart is his confidence was in a man. His confidence was in Abner instead of in the Lord. In verse 2, now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Banah, the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Rimon, the Berothite, of the children of Benjamin. For Beeroth also was the part of Benjamin. So Ishbosheth has two men that were over his troops. They're both from the tribe of Benjamin as well. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Because the Berothites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners there until this day. So we pause there with these two men and we focus on Mephibosheth in verse 4. Then we'll come back to the sons of the Berothites. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. So you remember Jonathan, this wonderful man, this man of integrity, the best friend of David. He had a son. Jonathan has died, but he has a son, and his son was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Jonathan and Saul dying on the same day. News comes to Jezreel. The nurse, the nanny, she picks up Mephibosheth, runs in haste, fleeing for their lives. She falls. It's such a bad fall that Mephibosheth becomes lame in both of his feet. That's a bad day, isn't it? Here's the news that his dad, his grandfather has died, also loses the ability to walk. And then all of a sudden, that's all that scripture gives us of Mephibosheth 
for several more chapters. We're going to come back to him in chapter 9, but we just get a real brief introduction to him here this morning in verse 4. And it goes back to Ishbosheth's two generals. Then the sons of Rimon the Berothite, Rechab and Benah, set out and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. So you can tell that Ishbosheth has lost heart. He's in bed at noon. That's never a good sign, unless you're sick or you just need a, need a nap or some extra rest. With the context that he had lost heart, he's showing that by being in bed at noon. Also, his guard's down. There's no one watching over him. There's no one guarding him. He doesn't say, oh, I'm going to go take a nap. You know, watch, watch guard. So here he is sleeping. He's vulnerable in verse 6. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. So they were able to get right to Ishbosheth, stab him in the stomach, and then flee and escape. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. Like, man, I really needed some encouragement. I decided to come to church this morning, and this is what you got for me. Yeah. They stabbed him in the stomach, they beheaded him, and they, they, they took his head. They're fleeing. Verse, verse 8, And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day, of Saul and his descendants. This is a clear power play. They know that Ishbosheth is going down, so they kill him bring his head to David, thinking that David is then going to give him a position in his regime. Uh, This is going to work out wonderful. They didn't know David very well. If they knew David well, they would have realized that this would have been a very bad move. So verse 9, but David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berothite, and said to him, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me saying, look, Saul is dead. Thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziglag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. Saying, guys, did you know that this has kind of happened to me before? This young man came saying that he had killed Saul, and then I executed him because he came against the Lord's anointed. If you would have known your history, if you would have known me, then you wouldn't have have done this in killing Ishbosheth. In verse 11 and 12, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person is his own, in his own house on his bed. Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men and they executed him, cut off their hands and feet and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Sometimes things don't turn out the way you think they will. This is going to be a good move for me. This is going to work out well. That's not how it worked. It ended their life. I don't know if you saw the headline in the news on Friday. This is what was read in the Washington Post. It says, wife crashes her own funeral, horrifying her husband who paid to have her killed. When I saw that, I had to check that out. Did you hear that? She crashed her own funeral. You know, she walks in the door. So what's the story? 
This woman was from Africa. She came to Australia, immigrated to Australia, married a man from Congo. They've been married for nine years. They go back to her home country to visit some of her family that was sick. And her husband decides, this is my opportunity to knock her off. I'm going to pay to have her her killed. So he pays $7,000. This woman's kidnapped. But instead of killing her, they take the money and make it seem like they've killed her. And the husband goes back to Australia going, wow, I'm free, has a funeral for his wife. She flies back to Australia. She waits till the funeral is done and people are starting to walk out and she walks in. And the husband, his words, he thought it was a ghost. You know, he, he goes to touch her to make sure that it's not a ghost. It was not a ghost. She called the police and he was arrested and he went to jail. So the moral of the story is don't go on a missions trip with your spouse to Africa. I mean, <laughs> you, you may have to really wonder what the mission of your spouse is at that point. But it didn't work out very well for the husband, did it? It didn't work out as he planned. And you have to understand that. If you're trying to accomplish something through wickedness, like these two men, these two men are in scripture for us for a reason. It shows us it doesn't work out. That they were really bringing detriment and destruction upon themselves. And that's always the case with sin. We're never going to get ahead with sin. Ultimately, it's going to be brought back upon ourselves. Let's pause and consider what's happening in David's life in this moment. Is he's about ready to become king of all of Israel through God's hand. He waited patiently all through these years for God to establish him, God to set him up. He never killed Saul, though he had opportunity. He didn't kill Ishbosheth. He allowed the Lord to bring about his promise in his way at his time. I think that's important for us as well in our own lives to let patience have its perfect work. That's what James tells us. James chapter 1. That's hard to do. Does anybody enjoy waiting? God gives a promise in his word. He speaks to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. You feel like your life is headed in a specific direction, and through obedience you make preparation, just like David, but it seems like nothing has happened. Maybe you've invested in school. You felt like the Lord put this upon your heart, and it was your desire to help provide for your your family and meet your needs and even give to others and be a blessing to the body of Christ and and reach out in in that way. And yet you find yourself going nowhere. Is anything going to happen? I thought that I was following the Lord. Let patience have its perfect work. God is doing something. Be patient. Has God set you on a course with your finances? Say, you know what? I know what God has for my finances. He wants me to live within my means. And so you've worked hard and you're going in this direction. And as soon as you have done that, it seems like financially things have just gotten worse. And you're like, what's the point? I'm trying to do things the right way. I'm trying to follow the Lord, follow his promises, let patience have its perfect work. Sometimes the fruit does not come overnight and can allow the Lord to to work. Maybe you're single and you desire to be married and you've been waiting and you've been waiting and you've been waiting and you're saying, I'm tired of waiting, I'm going to make it happen. Well, be careful. Be careful, you can make it happen. But it's much more a blessing to see God establish your life. He wants to establish your life. One of my favorite verses is Psalms 127. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, he who labors in vain who builds it. It's a warning. In the context of 127, Psalms 127 is speaking of our life. And if we try to build our life 
on our own apart from God, we're gonna be laboring in vain. So God's saying, don't do it without me. It's a warning, but it's also an invitation. It's an invitation. God's saying, I wanna build your life. No matter what stage you're in, if you're in college, you're, you're in high school, you're an empty nester, you're retired, you're in the middle of your, your working life, God wants to build your life if we'll let him. And David's a great example of that. He had the wisdom to take his hands off of his life, even though God had called him, God had anointed him, and he's saying, I want to see God build it. And I think you have d- discovered this in your life. Unless God builds it, it's futile anyway. Because if I build it, then I'm going to have to maintain it. And that's a lot of work. I can't maintain it. I want to be a part of something that God's doing. I want, I want his hand to be upon my life. I want his hand to be upon my family. So let patience have its perfect work. Maybe that's God's word for you this morning. You're rushing into a decision where you know it is God, your hand instead of God's hand. You're saying, how do I know the difference? Because when God opens the door, we can see his hand upon it. We go, I'm not trying to force this. I'm not trying to make this happen. I'm simply walking in obedience. Let's look at chapter five. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke saying, indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be a ruler over Israel. It's a little unfortunate that now they only come to David when he's the last option. Saul's gone, Ishbosheth's gone, Abner's gone. So now they're saying, okay, David, we want you to be our king. This is how the Lord worked. So so all of Israel saying, David, be our king. And they really say three things that I think are important when it comes to leadership of God's people. First, they say, you're of us. You're one of us. And someone who's going to lead God's people has to be part of God's people. And I know that's very simple, but in heritage and in heart. They're saying, yeah, you're you're one of us. And when we look at leaders that God raises up, I think it's important that they're in and of and from the people of God. Also, they say in in verse 2, they say that you have the ability. You've demonstrated the ability. Look at the beginning of verse 2. It says, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And that's important when we're looking for leaders amongst God's people is that there is an ability, that they they have the capability to fulfill the task. But the most important is what they acknowledge at the end of verse two, and the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel, called by God. David's called by God. This is God's plan. And that's the most important thing when we look for leaders is has God called them? In verse 3, therefore all of the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. First Chronicles gives us a record of the same event, similar to the Gospels. So, so First Chronicles speaks of these same things, and in chapter 12, it gives us more detail. There was 340,000 men, all of the troops came for this moment when David was anointed as king. This is a big deal. This is a big moment of recognition that God had raised up David to be their leader. It's the third time that David's anointed. First, he was anointed by Samuel as a young man. Then he was anointed king over Judah, just one tribe. Now he's anointed over the whole nation of Israel. Verse 4 gives us a great timeline of David's life. 
David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. He was 30 years old when he began to reign in Judah, and he reigned for 40 years in totality. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. So it was seven and a half years before this moment that he reigned over all of Israel. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So we begin to look at David's life and we put together the math. If he's 30 years old, when he started to reign in Judah, he wandered and fled from Saul for seven, seven and a half years or so. He reigned over for Judah for seven and a half years. So he was probably about 15 years old or so when he was anointed by Samuel. We don't know the exact age, but he was probably about that, about that age. And then there's all of these years of preparation before he reigns over Judah, before he reigns over Israel, and now he comes in as a 37-year-old. He's 37 years old, and it, God's promise has been fulfilled in his life. God is very patient in his preparation for the callings that he gives us in our lives. It's a long time. It's a lot of preparation. But the task is going to be great. And so the Lord takes his time to prepare David in an adequate way. One of the greatest ways that David was prepared was seeing what Saul did in a negative manner. Sometimes we learn the most from other people's mistakes. God may have put a Saul in your life. You have a really brutal boss. I bet when you become a boss, you'll do things differently because you experienced the pain that they caused in your life. There's something that's going on. There's a light bulb that's going on in your head saying, I don't want to be like that. And David, he had that experience. He learned from Saul's mistakes and it was God's timing. Be patient in God's preparation. Don't despise the days of, of small things. In the totality of David's life, he reigned much longer than he was prepared. But while he was going through the preparation, I'm sure it was a test of his patience. In verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Have you noticed that, especially in the Old Testament, there's a lot of trash talking? I mean, this is a pretty good, like, you know, you can't come in here. You can't defeat Jerusalem. Even the blind and the lame can, can defeat you, David. What's the history of Jerusalem? We almost automatically think that Israel would have occupation of Jerusalem by this point. But when Joshua came into the land, they conquered the king of Jerusalem, but they were never able to gain victory over Jerusalem, even though God had given it to them. This is Joshua 15, Verse 63, it says, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. And a lot of times that's the way it is in our lives. God has given us victory. He's declared, this land belongs to me in our lives spiritually, but we fail to enter into it. We, we fail to enter and possess what God has given to us. And that was the case for the children of Israel. David has his sights on Jerusalem. He wants to have his kingdom set up in Jerusalem. I think there's a couple reasons. One is there's no tribal history here. This wasn't the, the headquarters of Saul. It wasn't the headquarters of Judah. 
So it would be a, a place that could unify the country now that they're all together. Also, if you look at a map and you look at Jerusalem, it's a great place right in the middle of the country. It's a very difficult uh, city to defeat militarily as it sits a, upon a hill. So he's got his sights on Jerusalem. This is his plan in verse 7 and 8. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by Saul's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come in to the house. From Chronicles, we know the person, the man that's going to fulfill this challenge is Joab. This is what David says. The person that can go up the shaft into the city, the water shaft, a good entrance into the, the city without going through the gate, he's going to be my commander-in-chief. He's going to be the chief and general of my army. Joab's the one that has the initiative to go in and he takes the victory in Jerusalem. Now, was this a good choice by David as he was establishing, he's setting up his kingdom for years to come. This is a decision that's going to live on. Joab is going to be a key leader in his government, if you would. And did he make a good choice? I don't think so. And this is why. Because it's ability without character. Joab has already proven that he's not a man of character because he killed Abner out of revenge. It wasn't justice, it was revenge. So he's already shown that. And David doesn't say here, okay, I want someone to go in and take Jerusalem, but I'm also going to evaluate your character. Ability can never make up for a lack of character. But our world says differently. In every sphere of our society, we mainly go off of ability. If you have the ability, then you're going to have the job. Probably inside of your company, whoever you work for, there's this underlining code of ethic that says, if you can produce the numbers... No matter how you have to do it, then you're going to continue to move up in the company. But if you're a person of character and you're going to choose character over some of these financial decisions, then you're probably not going to be the next CEO of the company. Did you guys realize that we're in an election year? Did you know that? We're going to, we're going to pick a president in November. It's coming up. We're racing towards November. So when we study the scriptures, how do we apply it to our lives? I hope that you vote. I hope as a Christian you understand that that is a blessing that God has given to you. We're stewards of every blessing that God has, has given to us. In a lot of countries of the world, they don't get to vote to pick their future leaders. Take, for instance, Africa. Many times the only way there's a transition of power is through a revolution where thousands of people die. They vote with their blood to have to get somebody new into office. And we get to vote. And I hope that you take the Bible and you put it into every area of your life. I hope that I do as well. That's always the challenge. We've always got room to grow in that. So when we go to vote, we should take the scriptures into the voting booth. If you're not registered to vote, man, register to vote and say, I'm going to vote biblically and understand in choosing a new leader, that ability can never make up for character. We need to be praying that God would raise up godly men and women to lead in all spheres of our government. Because the scripture says that when a righteous person leads, the city's glad. We're blessed when we have, have righteous leaders. So it's a challenge in our own lives to kind of shift our thinking. Society says the only thing that matters is ability, but God says character is important. Ability is a factor, but the foundation 
is character. And then when we look at voting or we have the opportunity to put a leader in place, we want to evaluate character as well as ability. In 1 Timothy 3, we find a list of God saying, these are the requirements for men that want to be pastors and elders in the church. And do you know that 99% of that list has everything to do with character? And there's one statement about ability. And they need to be able to teach. They need to be apt to teach. So that they have to have some ability to be able to teach God's word, but then 99% of it is based on character. How does the church choose pastors today? How does the church choose who's going to be elders inside of their church? Hopefully it's based on character. Hopefully it's based on a walk with God and a small factor on their ability to, to teach the word, word of God. So David doesn't do that. He simply says, ability first. If you can go in and get the victory, you're going to be the king and chief. And I think in the long run, it does hurt the effectiveness of his kingdom. In verse 9, Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around it from the Milo and inward. So he builds his city, the city of Zion, God's people in, in Jerusalem. I just love Jerusalem. It's, there's something special about Jerusalem. Jesus died and rose again in Jerusalem. You can go to Jerusalem and actually wander through these ruins of the, the city uh, of David. It's important to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So David went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. Why was David great? Because he was a great guy. He was a great warrior, had a great personality. Oh yeah, he was good at music. No, he was great because God was with him. That's what makes us great, is the fact that the Lord is, is with us. Then the king of Tyre sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. That's pretty cool. He becomes king over all of Israel, neighboring country. Says, I'm going to send you all of the material. We've got great trees. Send you the carpenters, and we're going to build you a house. And this shows how David had favor not only with Israel, but the neighboring countries. This is an important verse. Highlight this one. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. And that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. David didn't go the direction of pride. He didn't think, well, this is because of my hard work. This is because of my character. This is because I was patient. He knew it was the Lord. He knew that God had established him and given him this kingdom. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And if you've been established in some way of your life, do you know that it's God's hand? Is it a little bit easier for you to pay rent and to pay your mortgage right now? Maybe your car is, is paid off. You don't have to worry as much if you go grab a burger after church or pick up some chips and salsa for the Super Bowl today. Do you have favor at your job? Has God blessed you? Have you acknowledged in your heart, this is the Lord? God's established me. The Lord is the one who's done this. When you speak, do people listen? Have you thought about that? How did that happen? You know yourself. I know myself. Why do people listen? That's the Lord. The Lord established you. The Lord established you as a voice in their life. And this is a really important point because if we don't acknowledge that it's the Lord, we're starting to rob God's glory, aren't we? We're starting to take credit for ourselves. And David knew in the heart, his heart that God had established him. The purpose that God established him is also important. He exalted his kingdom. Notice, it's talking about God's kingdom. God established David for his own glory. 
Why has God established you? Why has he established me? Do you feel more established in your marriage? You hold your marriage humbly, but you know that God has blessed your marriage. It's been established. You've got 30 years of marriage, 40 years of of marriage. Why has God done that? For his glory. That's not the norm. You know that it's not the norm. You know that God's done something special. It wasn't just for our comfort. It was for his glory. Again, has he established your business? Has he established your work life? Why did he do that? For his glory. We have to remember that. For his kingdom. And then for his people. For the sake of his people, Israel. David knew he was established so that God's people would be blessed. Every blessing that comes into our lives is not for us to hold on to, but for us to be able to pass on to others, to edify believers, to reach out to unbelievers. In verse 13, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron, also more sons and daughters who were born to David. And here's the names of some of these children. Now these are the names of those who were born in Jerusalem. Shalmuah, Sobab, Nathan, Solomon, and I'll let you wrestle with the rest of the names in verse 15 and 16. You could read them together on your way home if you'd like. Is this the Solomon who became king after David? No, it's not. That's Solomon through Bathsheba. Bathsheba will come into David's life later. So he has two sons named Solomon. Kind of like George Foreman, the boxer. He named all of his sons George Foreman. No joke. He had like nine sons and they're all named George. That seems really confusing, but also convenient at the same time. <laughs> Say, George, it's time for dinner. And they all, they all show up for, for dinner. Do you think that this is a good move or bad move by David to multiply wives and concubines? Thumbs up if it's a good move. Bad move. Thumbs down, right? This is not a good move. Deuteronomy 17, 17 was the warning to the children, kings of Israel saying, don't multiply wives unto yourself. David's walking into compromise. That's going to cause him great difficulty. He's ignoring the word of God here. I think there is something for us to learn. The seeds of compromise are often sown in times of prosperity and blessing. David's established. His life is easier. He's not living in a cave. He's not on the run from Saul. He's not in this place where Ishbosheth is still the king and coming against him in the northern part of Israel. He's established, and as he's established, he begins to sow the seeds of compromise. Be careful. Do, Do you feel blessed? Do you feel established? Allow those blessings to draw us near to the Lord, not to a place where we start going into compromise. Verse 17, Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, and all the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it, they went down to the stronghold. I bet the Philistines were a little frustrated. Why? Because David had been with them for a season. He took hiding with the Philistines. He feigned friendship with the Philistines. Now he's the king of Israel, and they've got their target on him. Notice the timing. As soon as David's anointed as king, the enemy attacks. And that's what happens in our lives. As soon as we begin to serve the Lord, as soon as there's an anointing and a calling and a fulfillment of some of those things, you start to say, yeah, I want to do my marriage in a godly way. I'm single, and I want to do my singleness in a a godly way. I want to serve inside of the church. I want to work at, reach out. In, in the workplace, not work out. Who wants to do that? Reach out in the workplace. 
than the enemy attacks. We have to anticipate that he's going to attack. And the scripture tells us, submit to God, resist the enemy, and he will flee from you. What does David do as the Philistines come against him in verse 18? The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtlessly deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went up to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, call the name of that place Baal Perazim. And Baal Perazim means master of the breakthrough. Master of the breakthrough. The enemy's attacking. David knows he can't go forward without seeking God's direction, and he inquires of the Lord. God, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to go up against the Philistines? I bet that in some way, you're desiring a breakthrough in your life this morning. That we do have an enemy. We know that Satan attacks us. We know that there's the attack of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And we also know that there is the attack of our own sinful flesh. Our enemy is not the Philistines. Our enemy is those three things. Saying, God, I need a breakthrough. Inquire of the Lord. Really seek God. God, what would you have me to do? And what area are you needing the breakthrough? Is it victory over sin? As Billy was praying and talking about in worship, I just feel this guilt and this, this shame living in the past. And Lord, I need a breakthrough. I'm struggling with anger. I'm, I'm struggling with lust. I need a, a breakthrough. I'm struggling with depression. I'm thinking about taking my own life. I need a breakthrough. I know that there's some of you that are in that place this morning. You're wrestling. I hope that you cry out to the Lord, that you call, cry out to others that, that love you. Don't go the way, way of suicide. It's in the area of finances. Say, I need a breakthrough. Inquire of God. Church, this isn't just a, an ancient story for us. This isn't, this isn't story time. You know, story time at the library is cool. I appreciate it. Take your kids to story time at the library. Young kids, toddlers, they sit down. They have a good time. They get inspired to read. It's, it's a great thing. But this isn't just like a, a story from a book at the library. This is God's word. And God gives an invitation. The creator of the universe, the savior, he has the answers. To go to him, to go to his word and inquire of him. God, what would you have me to do? And then as God speaks, David obeys. He does what God says. And that's when the breakthrough happens. God gives the victory. He realizes it's the Lord. And he says, God, a title for God is he's the master of the breakthrough. Like breaking through, through of water. And a lot of times we want the breakthrough without the obedience. We know what God has said in his word. Okay, God, this is what you've said about this particular situation. This difficulty, this sin that I'm wrestling with. But I don't want to obey. And there's a huge point of freedom that comes in our lives when we take our actions and our attitudes and we submit it to the authority of God. And that's what David does here. He submits himself to the answer that God gives. Saul, at his conversion, who became Paul, God calls him by name. Saul asks this question. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that's the essence of understanding that Jesus is Lord, that he's my master that he takes control of my life. Lord, what would you have me to do? I believe that 
Saul meant it, who became Paul. He was open to whatever God would say, whatever God would tell him. He was broken enough that he came to that place of saying, Lord, I want to do what you would have me to do. I don't think Paul ever stopped living his life that way. And in my life this morning, as there's areas that I need breakthroughs, I need to apply God's word. I need to go to the Lord and begin to inquire of him about these things. It's interesting for me, I'll go to a lot of people before I go to the Lord. People that I respect. What do you think? What's the answer here? How do I, how do I get through this? And there's a place for godly counsel. But it can't be in replacement of seeking our wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ. We need to be seeking him first and add godly counsel to that. Have you brought it to the Lord? Do you feel like you need a breakthrough in your marriage? Have you inquired of God? I don't like what God's going to say. He might actually call me to love my spouse. I'm done with that, you know. That's not the answer that I was looking for. Is there difficulty with one of the kids at home? Okay, Lord, what is it that you would have me to do? Is Is it drugs? Is it alcohol? Is it pornography? Do you find yourself just in bondage to, to alcohol? It's not in moderation for you. It's, it's in a place of drunkenness. It's in a place where you have to have it to be able to function. Man, God would love to do a work in your life. Go, go before him. Lord, what would you have me to do? I, I don't know if I'll like his answer. Is it lust? Is it sexual sin? Go to the Lord. Inquire of God. Man, it'll destroy your life. It'll destroy my life. That's why God gives us guidelines and instructions on sexuality. I don't like his answer. I don't like what he's going to tell me. I know what the Bible has to say about sex, and I feel like it's old-fashioned. Then the breakthrough's not going to happen. We're going to continue to be in that, that place of bondage. But God is the master of breakthroughs. He wants to bring breakthroughs in our lives. Inquire of him. As he speaks, as he speaks through his word, then obey it. And as we obey it, as we put our actions and attitudes under the authority of Christ, then that's when the breakthrough comes. There's one more breakthrough in verse 21. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up, circle around behind them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. I love this. Because God says this time, same enemy, you can't attack them in the same way. You can't attack them directly. You need to hide and wait. And when you hear them coming through the trees, then that's when you attack. And this is dependency. This is the Christian life. This is what's so good about walking with the Lord is God's not cookie cutter. You know, you maybe had a victory over particular area of struggle. Maybe it was anger in the past, and this is how you gained victory, but it's not how victory is going to come today. It's the same message. It's the same Savior, but God's going to apply it in a different way in our lives. Maybe you had a difficulty with an individual in the past, and this is how you worked through it, but it's not going to work this time because it's a different individual. Similar difficulty, but now we've got to seek the Lord again and say, what do you have this time? And God may say, it's going to be a different tactic. I, I want you to approach it in a different manner. Sometimes for us as a church staff, this is, can be difficult. And you need to pray for us about this. Is because we don't want to just take 2015's calendar and put it on 2016. And just assume that, well, what God had for the church last year is what God had for the church this year. But to take time to pray 
and say, allow the Lord to lead. And sometimes God says, yeah, man, do youth retreat again. Do father-daughter dance again. We, we did it on Friday night. It was fabulous. But we also want to be open to the Lord saying, no, I don't want you to do that. It's a year to take that off. It's a year to try something new. And I think it's very easy to just put our Christian life on autopilot and go, well, this is what we've always done. And Lord, maybe you have a different plan for us this time. David's open to that. So verse 25, and it shall be when you hear the sound of the marching in the troops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. When you hear that sound, the top of the mulberry trees, the troops are coming, that's when you attack. And David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. As you pray, would you listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit of how God would want you to apply his word in your life this morning? Father, we thank you for for giving us your word. We thank you for the lessons that are here. God, if we need patience in our lives to allow you to establish by your hand, would you help us with that? It's difficult to be patient. If we're in that place where we're beginning to sow seeds of compromise in the midst of blessing, would you protect us? And Father, we need breakthroughs in our lives. We look in our community. Lord, there needs to be breakthroughs. We we look in this next generation, the eyes of the youth. Lord, there needs to be breakthroughs. We look at sin in our own lives and there needs to be breakthroughs. So we're asking you, God, what would you have? What would you want us to do? And help us to walk in obedience. May we choose today to put our actions and our attitudes underneath your authority. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? As we worship, would you respond? If you need to come back to the Lord, and I know that we're kind of out of time here, and if, if just, just wait for a second before you head to the exits. I really think God wants to do a work right now. I think there's some of you that need to come back to Christ. And if you wander away from Christ as a believer, I just want to tell you, it is brutal out there in sin. It's brutal out there in the world. And I think you know that. It will chew you up. It'll chew me up. It'll destroy us. And why would we want to be apart from Jesus Christ? And you came this morning and God's calling you back. He's saying, would you come back to me? Your father's saying, would you come home? And he'll always welcome you home. And you're in that place of bondage and you're in that place of despair. You're going to go somewhere with it and go to Jesus Christ. And as Billy leads us in worship, there's going to be a ministry team down here in the front. And I'm asking you to come, to not wait to return to the Lord. If you need to get saved, so important. Every one of us is going to go into eternity. The question is heaven or hell. That's what the Bible says. And God loves you. He doesn't want any to perish to the point where he sent his son to take the punishment upon the cross. And as you believe in Jesus, then instead of God giving you the punishment that you deserve, he gives you grace, mercy, favor, eternal life. So I'm going to ask that you would come. If you're upstairs, come. We'll we'll wait. If you've come with a believer, ask them to walk with you, but respond. Let someone on the ministry team know, I need to receive Christ as my Savior. If you need prayer for other things in your life, we'd love to pray with you. So return to the Lord. Get saved. Need prayer. Come and respond.